I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Mike. And this is Kate. We have an awesome interview for you today. I really enjoyed this one. It's with a friend of mine from college, Tyler Gage, who is the author of Fully Alive, which is out today, actually. And so... Do you want to say hi, Penelope? What? Do you want to say say hi? No? Okay, you're shy. So... This is his bio. I'm an entrepreneur, author, speaker who uses wisdom from the Amazon and startup success to bring innovation and inspiration to growing organizations. I have spent the last 12 years studying the indigenous elders in the Amazon rainforest, venturing far from my suburban roots at the age of 20. After graduating from Brown University, I turned down a full grant to start Runa, a social enterprise that makes energizing beverages with Guayusa, a rare Amazonian leaf and improves livelihoods of 3,000 indigenous farming families in Ecuador. With over 70 employees and 15,000 stores selling Runa beverages in the United States and Canada, Runa has grown into one of the 500 fastest growing companies in the United States, according to Inc. Magazine. I was named Forbes 30 and Under Entrepreneur and winner of both the Big Apple Entrepreneur of the Year Award and Specialty Food Association Citizen Leader of the Year Award. ABC Nightline, National Geographic, and Richard Branson's book, Screw Business as Usual, have featured me for a unique and powerful approach to building businesses and creating social good. I also serve on the board of directors of David's Tea and on the advisory council for entrepreneurship at Brown University. That's fun. I added that in. That's not actually part of his bio. In addition to advising numerous startups and larger companies, I am the co-founding partner and strategic advisor to NACU, a pioneer indigenous healing center in Ecuadorian Amazon. He lives in Bellingham, Washington with his wife, Michelle, and enjoys boxing, yoga, riding my unicycle, and studying ethnobotany. Well done, Mike. So Tyler and I met when he was a freshman. I was a senior, and he had this super long hair, He had been recruited to play soccer at Brown, and he was playing varsity as a freshman. And he was this totally, like, he was like, yeah, far out, like, total California kid. And then he disappeared. And the word on the street was he was in the jungle. And we were all just like, okay. Then cut to my five-year Brown reunion. So this was, this is five years later. I'm standing in a field. And this guy comes running over to me, like this really clean cut, good looking guy. And he's like, hey, Kate, and gives me a big hug. And I was just like, um, hi, (laughs) but I totally didn't know who it was. And he was like, it's Tyler. And I was so excited to see him. And he had reemerged. And by that point, Runa was already up and running and underway. And he had become this beverage mogul basically. So the story is in the interview. He uses shamanic principles as the guiding light of his business and his life. And they work because Runa is everywhere. So listen in. I especially love the story of how he met Channing Tatum and how they became friends and how Channing has 
been one of the investors and advisors of the company because Channing Tatum is my Hollywood husband. And there's a funny little synchronicity in that story. And there's just like, and then the story of how Tyler almost got fired from his company. I think he's a really interesting guy and he's up to some very cool things. So anything else you want to say, hon? No, this was my first time meeting him and it was awesome. I had a really good time talking to him. It was cool just to hear his story because he is building... You know, we've been drinking Runa tea for a number of years now, and I really love Runa tea, so I'm a big supporter of it. I haven't dove too much into the bottled. Like, we talk about the different product offerings, so loose leaf tea, bag tea, and they also have, like, an energy drink type of a product, and then also glass unsweetened tea. And those I haven't actually dove that much into. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to after, because I'm a huge, I'm a huge, like, I love iced tea. He said they have a, a mint honeysuckle one that they created with Olivia Wilde and her friend and some other ones. So I'm going to try those out. And also, if you order the book, they have a campaign giveaway going on right now where you can win box seats in John Eisner's box seats at the U.S. Open tennis, which is happening this month, and some other really cool giveaways. You go over to tylergage.com and you can read about how to actually win the box seats and then you can also just go to amazon and buy the book so it explains how everything there enjoy the episode with penelope is sending you out have a great rest of the day and enjoy hello and welcome to the kate and mike show i'm kate this is mike and i'm so excited to be here today with my friend from a long many years ago tyler gage who is the founder of runa which is a amazing holistic beverage company, which I'm sure he'll describe that better, and the author of the book that is brand new today called Fully Alive. And Tyler, can you just say the subtitle of the book? Because I'm terrible at remembering this. (laughs) For sure. First, thanks for having me on. And the subtitle of the book is, well, so that's Fully Alive, Using the Lessons of the Amazon to Live Your Mission in Business and Life. Yeah. And we're not talking about Amazon.com here, right? Not Amazon.com. <laughs> Though the book real, is available real, there. Uh, it is available there. Always, always the strange combination of uh, digital Amazons and physical Amazons. Yeah. No, we're talking about the literal Amazon, the one in South America. And, you know, Tyler, it was so interesting. First of all, I'm so happy you reached out about the book because it's been, you know, we've emailed a little bit here and there, but I don't think I've seen you since summit at sea in like 2011. I think that's right. Quite possibly. No, no, there was a time in New York and I think you had a broken leg. Yes, that is correct. Thanks for that. There was that one tea date with the broken leg, but other than that, it's been since 2011, but I'm so happy you reached out. And, you know, I read your book on our recent trip to London and your story is so compelling and we'll get into it in a second, but I just want to say, you know, to be like a young man running a very successful company, but then sharing the fact that your journey has been so highly influenced by spirituality and shamanic principles and what you learned in the Amazon. Like, I think it's just such an important message to share. So when you reached out, I found myself like reaching out to a bunch of my friends and I was so, it was so funny. I was texting them and I was like, you know, I'm not sure exactly why I feel so called to play publicist for Tyler, but I do. (laughs) So, cause I don't, usually do that. Like we have a lot going on, but it's an important story because it's a different story. This is not the story of how you like worked your ass off to grow a beverage company, although that's certainly part of the story, but there's this whole other element. So can you just take us back a little bit to, 
I met you in 2000. What year were you a freshman at Brown? 2005? Four or five. Yeah. Four or five. I met you in 2004 or five. It was my senior year. It was your freshman year at Brown. And can you take me back to where you were at that time and kind of what was going on in your life and sort of in your emotional life? For sure. So first, thank you for being so enthusiastic about the book and playing part-time yeah, publicist. You know, it's so, I, I, I mean, it really, I was just like, gosh, I feel so compelled. It was very, it was like sort of an odd feeling, but I'm so, I was like, thank you for writing a book that's worth talking about. Well, I appreciate that. That that means a lot. Whenever you're writing it, you're like, is this going to, are people going to like this? I don't, I don't know. It's also just well, a fun story. Like whether you're interested in business or not, I mean, our listeners are, it's just a, like, it's, it's just a fun read just from a, like, even if it were a fiction book, it's entertaining. So that was the goal. My life's weird. It definitely checked the weird box pretty effectively. So <laughs> that got that backbone. But to get into your question in terms of where I was back 2004. So, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area and as I was going through high school, started developing different levels of anxiety and depression, which is something that lots of us, sadly, in our 21st century black plague of anxiety, depression, insomnia, trauma, a lot of us can relate to. And and for me, a lot of it was sort of deeper down and inexplicable in certain ways. And it was this feeling like there was something more going on to life and some deeper parts of myself that weren't being expressed and I didn't have access to and didn't have anyone pointing me in the right direction. So I developed some strange interests in lucid dreaming and then these types of Taoist meditations for athletic performance. I was a pretty mediocre high school soccer player and started working with this trainer and doing these Taoist meditation techniques and visualizations and became a very good soccer player in a very short period of time and got recruited to play soccer at Brown, which is where we met. So in a lot of ways, it was this culmination of this sort of success of the first 18 years of my life of getting recruited to play soccer at this incredible school. And when I went, I felt like that simple goal didn't have the depth I was looking for. And in a lot of ways, it showed me that the deeper purpose and connection I was looking for wasn't going to come through simple material goals that I had. So continued on a bit of a downward trajectory in my emotional life, being away from home and just feeling more and more called to something else that I didn't know what it was. So part of the story actually, which isn't in the book, but I really should have put in there was at the end of my second semester at school, I started reading about this guy, Mark Allen, who's the seven-time Hawaii Ironman champion. He's won the Ironman more than anyone ever. And his story's crazy. He ran the Ironman a couple times, couldn't win, and then started training with a Weechel shaman in Mexico and then won the Ironman seven times and fully attributes his physical performance to these tools he developed for channeling his mind, his spirit for excellence. And for me, is like curious, but very sort of performance-driven. I was like, all right, this is for real, right? Homie's not just like waving some feathers and saying kumbaya, like <laughs> homie did some stuff and won the Ironman seven times. There's something there. And as I was sort of getting curious, your mom came down and we had dinner. We had Indian dinner with Sasha and a bunch of friends and she gave me a tarot card reading. And I remember it so vividly. And basically the thesis of the tarot card reading was you're about to go on a walkabout. Like you're at this breaking point in your life of journeying to figure out what's up for you. And Basically, after that, I just reached out to Mark, just said, hey, Mark, what's up? I'm Tyler. I love what you're up to. He responded and invited me to come spend some of the summer with him and his teacher. So long story short, you know, went, spent a couple weeks with them and then stumbled my way down to Costa Rica and then Peru, where I spent the better part of about two years 
living and studying with some indigenous uh, Shipibo elders and healers down in the jungle. So, yeah, so when we met, it was sort of a strange, strange apex from, you know, my very average suburban upbringing to a very strange beginning to a very strange journey. And you were like 19? Yeah, 19. I think 20 when I first went to Peru. Then you came back to, did you finish, graduate from Brown? So I did. Yeah, it was a bit of a jagged route, but ultimately found my way back, which my parents were very happy about since losing me in the middle of the Amazon was not super high on their priority list. But yeah, I went back, you know, part of the interest I developed when I was in the Amazon was in the indigenous languages. You know, I found that the incredible knowledge they have of the rainforest as their pharmacy and their supermarket, the incredible mythology connection to their ancestors, all of it's really woven into the language. So studying the Shipibo language was this incredible portal into their spirituality, into their culture, into their relationship to their environment. So I basically used that as a thread to go back to Brown and mm. study my degrees in literary arts, which is amazing. Extremely, like, and now you wrote like, a book, so that's perfect. Exactly, yeah. So my jumping quickly to ruin my business partner's degree was in marine biology. So we'd have frequent debates about whose degree was more meaningless in starting a business. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I stumbled back to Brown and sort of used my academic studies to sort of bring back some of the translation and transcription of some of the stories and the language. Cool. Um, hold on, I have one more. Okay. I have a lot of questions. but So do I. But... Yeah. Um, well, so talk, I want to know, so you grew up in the Bay Area. And, well, you know Tyler. You guys go way back, so this is our first meeting, so I get all the questions. No, you do I know. But, <laughs> like, how did you know about lucid dreaming? Like, how did you even get going down that route? Because that, as an 18-year-old guy, you know, like, how did that start? Was it your parents into kind of what we call or what is classified as, like, the woo-woo category? <laughs> um, like, you know, how did you go down that path? Yeah. So in terms of my upbringing, my family was extremely loving, but extremely secular as well. My dad's commercial real estate broker. Mom was a stay at home mom. No religion, no real spirituality. My grandparents were Quakers. So Quaker values were very deeply instilled in our family. And so notions of social justice, environmental responsibility, those were sort of implied values, but not expressed. We never went to Quaker meetings or anything like that. So a lot of it came from my existential anxiety. It was just this, you know, ever since I was probably nine or 10, just this, I'm going to die someday. And what's that going to be like to not exist? And what does that mean if I'm not going to exist? What does that mean about, you know, like the existential loops, which we've all gone down those wormholes at some point for whatever strange reason that hit me relatively early. And just these threads of deeper questioning and deeper questioning and deeper questioning. And like a lot of things in my life, they've just been strange coincidences. So I was in a bookstore on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley, just hanging out. And there was some book about lucid dreaming that I just happened to pick up and happened to plow through and happened to start lucid dreaming. So I think a lot of the twists and turns in my life were just being curious and being open. I think that's something I talk a lot about in the book where, you know, I think purpose and drive and meaning and all the stuff, which are things people strive for. A lot of it came through first feeling very lost. I think that's really the backbone of that trigger point of depression, feeling lost. That was that spark to, all right, let's be open to answers. And then being open to strange coincidental things and being willing to say yes to curiosities, even if they didn't have a seemingly rational explanation or a clear direction. Hmm. Cool. For those listening, can you just explain what lucid dreaming is in case they don't know? 
Yeah, so lucid dreaming, and that's an example of one that sort of got me really angry as well when I was in high school, because <laughs> lucid dreaming is basically the idea that you can be awake in your dreams. So we spend roughly a third of our lives dreaming, and you can actually train yourself to be conscious in your dreams. And it's actually remarkably simple. So that was where, you know, I read this book and started practicing with a matter of probably a week. I was starting to have lucid dreams and not too far after that with a pretty high degree of repetition. I'm like, why does no one talk about this stuff? Right. Come on. Like, I know it's not the coolest thing. <laughs> yeah. Not that hard. Dreams are super powerful. They're a critical part of our consciousness and no one talks about this stuff. So, but yeah, lucid dreaming, there's a great book. Stephen LaBerge is a professor who's done a huge amount of lucid dreaming research, largely at Stanford. And his first book, Lucid Dreaming, is, is awesome. Awesome. And then, okay, so I know you eventually made your way back to Brown. But before you made your way back to Brown, now you, you guys started Runa your senior year, right? Can you talk about the entrepreneurship? Weren't you in, like, you were entered a contest at Brown, and that's kind of what triggered things? Yeah, so I came back after spending the summer of 2008 in the jungle, and I was doing these traditional plant dietas, which are basically the backbone of healing and shamanic training in the Amazon, which are these sort of intensive periods of fasting, isolation, and consuming very powerful plant medicines in the jungle. So that was like, that was my jam. I was like deep in plant la-la land in many ways and came back and a couple of my friends were getting into this concept of social entrepreneurship, which was something I'd never heard of, started to kind of spark some of my interest largely because I'd had a couple of powerful experiences the summer before. One which really impacted me and kind of jostled me was one afternoon, one of the Shipibo guys told me this incredible story about this one tree near the village and how one of his grandfather's spirit basically lived in the tree. The next morning, he came back having cut down the tree and was getting ready to sell it for hardwood. And for me, I was on my you know environmentalist high, you know, high horse and went up to him all perturbed and righteous and was like, hey, man, like, we're kind of, you know, hypocritical, you know, it's your grandfather's spirit, all your legends, but like, you're cutting it down. Like, what the heck, man? And he's like, well, if you had a choice between cutting down a tree or having enough money to send your mom to the hospital, what would you do? Or if it was cutting down a tree and having money to send your kid to school, what would you choose? That punched me in the gut pretty hard, seeing and realizing that the trade-offs these communities make are for real. And there's spiritual layers and there's cultural layers, but really the brass tacks of it is economic. And you know, these are people who really struggle to find their way in the modern economy. And if they don't have the resources to get education, get certain kinds of health care, it's a really tricky situation where they have to make very sad sacrifices on a daily basis. So that was kind of in my head. So they started talking about social entrepreneurship. I was curious with some of those threads. And they basically dragged me to an entrepreneurship class, fall of 2008, taught by this professor, Danny Warshe, who was a really incredible, bright, visionary serial entrepreneur. And we had to write a business plan. So we were throwing out all sorts of just garbage undergraduate business plan ideas. And <laughs> one of them that I threw out was for Guayusa, that a friend of mine in California had been working on this loose idea of bringing Guayusa, this rare Amazonian tea to market. So we wrote this business plan ended up winning Brown's business plan competition and the Rhode Island State business plan competition. And sort of long story short, made the relatively insane decision to move to Ecuador two days after graduating to try and give it a go. And I mean, the longer story is in the book and I highly yeah. recommend like reading the book because the story is fascinating and also hilarious. And 
you know, one of the things that you talk about and you weave throughout the book are these shamanic principles that informed your business journey. So can you talk about just like one or two examples of things that you learned living in the Amazon with the people there that then, you know, woke you up to a different way of approaching business than perhaps you would have if you were just, you know, hustling? For sure. Just Not that hustling. you didn't hustle because you did. <laughs> straight hustling. That's all it is. No. I wish it'd be a lot easier if it was all just yeah, straight hustling. Yeah, it would hustling. be. So it's actually a good jumping off point of, you know, when we got to Ecuador, we showed up as two 23-year-olds in the middle of Ecuador with literally two people we knew in the whole country. So we had to design not only the business, but our own personal psychologies from the stuff that we knew. And for me, that was the shamanic traditions of the Amazon. So, you know, two core lessons and tools we put into place. The first is what I talk about as finding strength in vulnerability. So a major thesis of what I've learned in shamanic practice is that the portal to strength is through weakness and through the shadow and through our fears. And one of my favorite Native American sayings is they say, uh, red man medicine makes you feel bad, then makes you feel good. And white man medicine makes you feel good, then makes you feel bad. And in the indigenous worldview, and I think a natural worldview, this process of transformation happens often with the downward descent. And it happens with the turning toward the uncomfortable parts of ourself and a willingness to go through uncomfortable experiences and uncertainty to get to where we really want to go and to bring deeper layers ourselves forward. So when we got to Ecuador, we embraced that as a business strategy, essentially. We showed up and said, all right, we have two options. One, we can pretend we're business people and business guys, which is definitely not going to work. Or two, we can do what we know how to do, which is act like students. We can talk to people and say, hey, we have no idea what we're doing, but we believe in this for some crazy reason. And we're going to work our asses off. We're going to do this in a really high integrity way. And we want to build partnerships and build relationships. And that spirit of saying, hey, we don't know what to do. We don't really know how this is going to go. And being open to other people's perspectives, open to new partnerships, that was the foundation that allowed us to launch and basically make that initial translation from crazy visionary dream to like real touchstones in Ecuador. So I think that idea of finding strength and vulnerability, especially in the world of, of entrepreneurship, where, as you know, it is often that like crush it, hustle, everything's amazing, everything's amazing, but being willing to admit our shortcomings, admit our shortfalls and use that actually as a point of attracting support was critical for us in the early days. Another one is as we grew the business that I'm a big proponent of, which is probably not too surprising given the shamanic orientation of my life, but using the full faculties that we as humans have in navigating the business world. So rather than just focusing on the rational, you know, deductive nature of our mind to evaluate decisions of actually using intuitive faculties and deeper parts of our awareness to make decisions. So for me, that involves things like dreaming, you know, if I'm struggling with a certain decision or early on, it was like, oh, do we plant the trees here, or build a factory here? What do I do? Journal about it before going to bed, launch it right in my subconscious, dream about it, wake up, journal some more, and just use those unseen sort of ricochet chambers of my heart, my mind, and my spirit to get deeper feelings and insights about things that aren't always easy to explain just in words or with Excel spreadsheets, for example. And I think for me, a big part of why Runa is alive and is thriving is because we were willing to approach it from a deeper place and willing to lean into 
deeper parts of ourselves, both the vulnerability and the intuition. I love that. Mm. And th- I mean, those are things that we operate with in our business so often, but our business is super focused on personal growth and spirituality. So it's like pretty normal to incorporate those things. And that's why I love that, you know, you guys are in Whole Foods across the country and doing, you know, having huge investors and things like that. So it's really cool that that's at the bedrock of a more traditional business in a certain way. I mean, certainly more brick and mortar and like product focused. I want to know more about the business structure. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to. Yeah, let's talk about, I want to, so can we ask you, so two things, and I think they can weave together. Why Guayusa? Yeah. I know the answer to that, but people don't. <laughs> um, and then, you can explain if you want. <laughs> what was that? You can explain if you want. Okay, I can explain it, and then you tell me what was wrong with my wrong, explanation. Wrong. I, I, um, but actually, this is good practice to see like how the message is coming across. So yeah, my understanding... When we're getting paid as the marketing promoters, like you're going to get paid as a marketing promoter <laughs> yeah, soon. No, I, be, yeah, exactly. It'd be good. So my understanding from both not only having had like I drink Runa and then also just hearing you explain about it and then reading more in the book is that Guayusa is used in the traditional culture with these early morning ceremonies mm-hmm. to talk about your dreams and kind of listen to what the message is that the Guayusa leaf is bringing. And it's sort of like a shamanic practice of diving deeper into what may not just be seen on the surface level of life. And do they do this every single morning with the Guayusa leaf? Yeah, so so you definitely hit the nail on the head of the deeper taproot of Guayusa. I mean, obviously, so, from a marketing standpoint, like it delivers a really clean, awesome yeah, energy, right. and there are a lot of health yeah. benefits. But, of course, I go yeah. like to the deeper. <laughs> yeah. So start high level, and then we'll sink deeper into the uh, Perfect. where you got to. So Guayusa, it's a leaf that's brewed like tea, but it's actually not related to tea. So I don't know if most people know this, but white tea, green tea, black tea, oolong tea, puer, all come from the same plant. There's a plant called Camellia sinensis, which is processed different ways to make normal, quote, tea. So guayusa, wholly different plant, different botanical species. It's actually in the holly variety. And in the Amazon, guayusa is the lifeblood of the Quechua people. The Quechua is the indigenous group we work with. So for them, just as you said, they get up every day, three o'clock in the morning, whole community gets up brews these big clay pots full of guayusa and sits around and interprets their dreams, tells myths, and connects as a community. And it's really this anchor point of the fabric of their people, this really simple act of getting up and drinking tea together. And for me, that was a very inspirational model that, you know, we all, especially in our world, have lots of complicated ways that we feel connected and build our communities and all these things. But for them, it's really simple. And just seeing the ripple effects of that in terms of communication, laughter, transmission between generations is really powerful. And Guayusa is the anchor point and the locus of that. Functionally, Guayusa has a lot of caffeine. It's one of the most caffeinated plants by dry weight on earth. So when people ask, oh, they get up at 3 a.m., how do you do that? It's like, well, you drink a lot of Guayusa and you get, you get pretty lit. But I say lit, but a big part of what attracted us to the product and I think why the product so successful is it really is a different kind of energy than what you get from coffee. Yes. You know, for me, if I drink coffee, I'm bouncing off the wall somewhere for days on end often. With Guayusa, I was surprised when I first drank it because it gave me a certain kind of focus and clarity. I almost describe it like it was holding me up from behind as opposed to punching and smacking me in the face. Mm, and yeah. part of it, biochemically, it has a really interesting mix of polyphenols and chlorogenic acids 
So the the basic understanding, it has this sort of full delivery system of stimulating and nutritional benefits that gives you that clean energy, as we say with our branding. What's well, good branding? And mm-hmm. it also the taste is like this really yummy, earthy kind of, you know, so many like teas that we're used to have a bitterness to them. And mm-hmm. Runa has this really smooth, like just taste yeah. that I really it's enjoy. Guayusa doesn't have tannins. Ah. which is what give normal green black tea that kind of astringency, which is why our most popular products are actually unsweetened because it has that smooth, uh, naturally sweet taste. But bridging a bit to why why you see even in the bigger picture and why it's such a really interesting plant even in the shamanic sense is that it's this sort of strange outlier in the sort of revered plant world in the Amazon because it's so accessible. You know, a lot of these sort of, quote, shamanic plants in the Amazon are really intense and used for serious illness and things which you just you wouldn't want to drink every day, you know, that kind of a thing. And guayus is this bizarre plant where even in the botanical kingdom, most plants that have a lot of efficacy taste bad, right? I mean, think about the herbs and herbs. It's kind of like this thing tastes bad. It's probably going to do something good for me. With guayus, <laughs> it has this amazing flavor. It has this incredible accessibility. Kids drink it. And it sort of lives in the middle world, if you will. So it has this really beautiful, deep, rich spirit to it, but it lives in the human world. And it's about bringing humans together. It's about exchanging ideas. And it's about being a source of inspiration and literal energy for human communities. So it it was this sort of interesting opportunity to say, hey, this is such a perfect bridge between the world of the Amazon and the world up north. I mean, caffeine alone, of course, perfect bridge for any (laughs) any modern Western culture and our uh, productive obsessions. But the flavor, the energy demands, it just had all these perfect characteristics of this sort of multi-layer approach. One of my strange business inspirations was actually Yogi Bhajan. You know, there's obviously lots of strange things around him and controversy aside, but I thought what he built was really interesting because of the layers. So, you know, he built Yogi Tea, which probably lots of people drink, which seems like a normal tea company and was very kind of middle world capitalist business. He then built his sort of communities where people would come together and share in in community. And then he had his sort of high level yoga teaching. And I thought that was really beautiful how he had the multi layers of, hey, someone can just brew a cup of yogi tea and have a nice inspirational quote. And that's awesome. Or you can go all the way through the really hardcore yoga teaching and get the richness there. So as a business model and talking about that and why Guayusa fit, the bandwidth and breadth of on one side saying, hey, this is an energy drink. Tastes great. Drink instead of Red Bull. Feel good. Awesome. And then the ability to connect so many layers deeper, all in the same thread and same story, is probably my favorite thing about Runa and the opportunity that Guayusa gave us. Yeah, and people can just like dive into whatever level they feel comfortable with and perhaps whatever level they're open to at that time. So to go back to Mike's question, can you talk about the- Well, oh. hold on. Before we go there, um, <laughs> I just there was something I wanted to ask you a while ago. We're going to backtrack a second. What did you do when you went to, like, when you're 18, 19 years old and be like, I'm going to go to the Amazon. I mean, I know what I did at that time in my life, but like, what the heck were you doing there? Like, you know, was it, it, you had a call before the company? Yeah. Before the company. But then even when you left, so there's like a two-parter story there where it's like when you're 19 years old and you just like, I got to go. And how long did you leave for before you came back to Brown? And then after graduation, was it a really a conscious decision to go to Ecuador and just be like, 
I'm building an organization. I know this is probably in your book, so we can talk more about that. But I'm curious, even the first story, I have not read your book yet, clearly. So it's... You're going to really like it. No, I will now, yeah. yeah. With moving and stuff, it's been a little... I haven't been doing <laughs> yeah. much reading. Besides Daddy Hugs, that's it. <laughs> He's been I. reading Daddy Hugs about 10 times, ten times a day. day. Trump, Trump Daddy Hugs, I yeah. don't. No. <laughs> I mean, it's a New York Times bestseller, Daddy Hugs. No, it's not. I, I don't know. But <laughs> yeah, so like when you're 19 years old and you go to South America, like what are you doing? So a lot of the ways I've gotten into seemingly strange esoteric stuff have come through very seemingly normal routes. And that's where there's lots of strange parts of my journey, but a lot of it I think is very relatable. I literally reached out to people. <laughs> I, I asked for help and I followed people places. So after being with the Weecholes and then in Costa Rica for a while with an ethnobotanist there, I reached out to this psychologist and healer, incredible man named Jose Stevens, who had studied with indigenous healers for 20 years. I'd read some of his books and loved them. And same things that emailed, you know, the weird esoteric shamanic tool of the laptop and said, <laughs> hey, uh, hey, Jose, here's my story. Love what you're doing. Can I talk to you? And he said, yeah, let's talk. And he was bringing a small group to study with some of his Shipibo teachers down in the Peruvian Amazon. So he sort of, he brought me down and then basically got lost from there is, is a long story short. But basically when I was down there, I was doing a lot of these dietas, which are the, as I mentioned, these really focused, really intense practices for personal healing and developing personal strength. You know, we're fast forwarding a bit. We're developing these indigenous medical clinics now, basically combining Western medicine and indigenous plant medicine to treat patients from around the world, in some cases with anxiety and depression, which of course is very close to home for me, and in other cases with severe autoimmune disorders. So these plant dietas are basically a way to heal, rebuild, and reprogram the physical, emotional, psychological selves and leverage the sort of biochemical capacity of these plants, also alongside this really profound X factor of spiritual intelligence for lack of a more precise word and the vagueness that that is in an incredible way. So I was doing a lot of that, you know, weeks and weeks on end, just getting worked and worked and worked and, you know, burned to the ground many times over. Yeah. So that's basically what I was doing in the jungle. And then, uh, your second question, the jumping off point of when we decided to do Runa, I remember very vividly and write about this in the book, but we'd sort of gotten all this traction with the business plan. I had no interest in thinking I was going to be a business person and spent some time in the woods and used a practice that I've used repeatedly in my life of lying on the earth, putting my hand on my heart and just going through the things I'm grateful for. And just using that portal of gratitude to get in touch, like basically getting out of my like, well, if we do this and it doesn't work, but then if we do and just like, all right, shut the fuck up. Like anchor down and get in that feeling and when I tapped in, there was this undeniable clarity of you're going to do this. And not even like a, you should do this, like you don't even have a choice. Like this is the momentum and energy there was so palpable that I, I didn't have a choice. And I think that limited and singular moment of certainty was necessary because the incredible uncertainty that we then catapulted ourselves into and the enormous questioning of, oh my God, this is, we're going to die. This is gonna, nah, nah, nah having the memory of being able to be like, you know, I felt something like I felt something there that even if by a thread could carry me through a lot of later periods of questioning and difficulty. Hmm. Cool. So yeah. I know later on 
you, okay, so many questions, but I know later on, can you just touch on really quick, like one of those great moments of insecurity was when you were getting fired from the company. <laughs> almost, almost fired. Almost me. fired. It, I know it didn't actually happen, but there was like a moment of profound discomfort. And yeah. can you talk about, just share that story quickly. And of course people can read more in the book. It's quite compelling. Your Steve Jobs moment. Yeah, it's Steve Jobs moment. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs who have had this moment. Some of them have actually ended up getting fired. And that was for the best for them. Luckily, you weren't. And that was for the best for you. Uh, Can you share that story and a little bit what the big lesson was for you in that? Yeah. And I want to share that story and actually open with it in the book because it was such a trying moment. And, you know, that's the book ultimately for me is about how do we navigate chaotic situations in our lives. And that for me was a pretty apex business moment of, okay, this is real. And I'm at and past pretty much every edge I thought I had. And in short, the story, we basically did our first like major equity raise, raised like $6 million. We'd been on like a pretty big tear with growth and ended up butting heads with our new investors as we sort of had to make this transition from scrappy entrepreneurial venture to legitimate growth company. And for me, that was a really difficult process. I started butting heads with a couple of our investors and they were trying to tell me what to do and... I don't really like to be told what to do and butting heads over all sorts of things. I mean, I kind of go through the story in the book of sort of what led to some of the breaking points, but ultimately led to, yeah, me getting a call as I was on my way back from a trip to Ecuador saying that there was a meeting the next day, at which point I was likely going to get removed from running the company that I started. And there were some interesting wrenches that people can read about in that process and some twists and turns, but Ultimately, the breakthrough I had was sort of we had a completely explosive board meeting the next day where I was called a fucking pompous child by one of our board meetings, to which I responded, namaste to you too, you dick. It's <laughs> um, a great moment. And, uh, and then the meeting erupted. <laughs> and that night, you know, I, I kind of went back to some of my roots of kind of similar what I just mentioned of how I decided to start Runa, left my phone in my apartment, went out, walked for hours breathe, try to get some space, try to be like, all right, same thing. All my thoughts, my anger, all this is so tempting to jump into, but I know there's something else under the surface. And basically spent a long time walking around, sinking in, singing, feeling it in my heart and passed out for a moment on a park bench in Brooklyn (laughs) and ended up having a handful of revelations. The first one of which was that my story of this is mine. Like, how can I they're going to kick me out of the company that I started. Wait, when was this ever mine? Like going back to the story, it's like, this didn't come from me. Guayus is not mine. It doesn't belong to me. This vision isn't something that I possess. Like what the heck kind of a twisted mentality is that? And me just trying to possess and control this thing that really isn't about me. And that then led to me seeing a lot of the ways that I just wasn't listening. You know, I really gotten myself in this like, just tense, going for it, stressed out place. And I wasn't receiving feedback, which essentially amidst lots of other horrible garbage the months that this invitation from our investors and our company say, hey, it's time for you to step up as a leader. And it's time for you to be a real leader and a CEO and not just a scrappy entrepreneur. And I was taking it personally and I was, oh, these things, but oh, you said that and fuck you. So 
being like, okay, the deeper message is this is an invitation for me to step up and grow. And I can make that transition from being like whatever hustler Tyler to really being a leader. And as a whatever 26 year old, 27 year old, like that's not the easiest leap in the world to make, but thankfully got a lot of great support from our investors, our advisors and our team to help sort of coach and support me through that evolution, which I think I grew a lot. I'm not sure. I don't think I was ever the best CEO in the world, but one of the core insights and probably the singular best piece of advice I ever got about what it means to be a CEO is from Blair Kellison, who's the CEO of Traditional Medicinals, awesome tea company. And he said, being a CEO is really simple. It's like, you have to do two things. You lay track and you clear roadblocks. Hmm. He's like, you build the right team, get the right people around you. They do the job. If you don't hire people who know more about sales, marketing operations than you do, you hire the wrong people, fix that. And then your job is to lay down track for them to go forward and make shit happen. And if they have roadblocks, they tell you, get the roadblocks out of the way, let them plow forward. And I was like, huh, that's very different than my mindset of like, I got to do everything. I got to work 20 hours a day and it's all. So I think that piece of feedback I go back to a lot. Crazy experience, but lots of lessons there. I love that. Such an important lesson. Yeah, for sure. such an important lesson. We've been going through something similar within the last year as we've brought a lot more people onto our team and have gone from being a two-person show, just me and Mike, to being, you know, a full company of like 10 different people we work with. And it's such a valuable lesson for growth that like you have to let go. You have to let go. Yeah. Thank you for that. What is the, this is a technical question. I hear this a lot. What's the difference between an investor, which I understand, and but really I'm more interested in what an advisor is. So Mm -hmm. you hear these people that are, I'm an advisor. Tim Ferriss talks about all the time. I'm an advisor to this company or that company. Mm -hmm. Like, so an investor would be, I'm clear on that one, but like, what is an advisor? Very nebulously defined is the short answer. I mean, it could mean any number of things. I mean, most practically anybody you go to for advice could be an advisor. (laughs) You know, so for us at Runa, we built an advisory board early on, which was actually our basically mimicking this community strategy and the Guayusa spirit in the business Mm. of kind of saying, hey, we don't know Jack about building a beverage company. But for some reason, we have an amazing group of people who do know beverages, who can be our, you know, quote, council of elders around our Guayusa fire, mythically speaking, (laughs) and they can help us out. So for us, everybody on our advisory board was also an investor in the company. I think what you will see in companies is some might come and say, hey, I can help you do an X, Y, and Z. Give me a bit of the equity. I'll help you, which can be very effective. Generally, I'm a bit skeptical of that. Partly because our early on, we took very small investments. I mean, we didn't have anybody that wanted to write us even a $50,000 check. So we took 10, 15, $20,000 checks because we were completely dead broke and scraping by month to month for the first three years of the business. So in our case, when it's like, and I often talk about this too, and you know, we have a lot of celebrity investors now, which has been great. But I think anyone who comes forward to an entrepreneur and says, hey, I can do all these things, give me some of your equity. If anybody has actual success in business, they have probably a bit of money. So if they're not willing to write you a check, even for a small amount, something isn't right. That's kind of how I've always felt of like, if you really believe in what I'm doing, you believe in the business and you say all these things, you can write, like, I know you have money. I know you invest in other things. If you really believe in like what we're building, write a check. And then even, Hey, if it's a certain thing of like, okay, you know, I have a certain investor who's going to write a check and just be a passive investor or somebody who says, Hey, I'm going to write a check and then I'm going to spend eight hours a month helping you guys with R&D, innovation, all these things, I'll say, great, I'm happy to give you a bit of additional equity to compensate and support you for that. That's fair. 
but I think it's, in my view, a rare occasion where it makes as much sense just to say, hey, here's some free equity without an investor putting their money where their mouth is, for lack of a better term. And, you know, on the other hand, the other, you know, the corollary to that is if they're saying, hey, let me give you this advice in exchange for equity in the company and they're not willing to write a check, I would almost question their advice because, you know, you would hope if they have such good business advice, they would have some money to put (laughs) towards your venture. And again, too, if you're like, you know, hey, my investment minimum is a million dollars. And there's just some like great sales guy in the, in the industry I'm in who like wants to help me out. Like, okay, all right, there. You know, there's of course logical yes, yes, yes workarounds, but of course, right. So yeah. I have to ask you about speaking of your celebrity investors. Channing Tatum is my Hollywood husband. Oh, <laughs> so Uh-oh. Mike and I each have a Hollywood spouse, and he's <laughs> Mike mine. Is- oh, God, I can't say her name. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to say her name. You know, Entourage. I never watched it. Okay. The woman that was Kevin Conley's <laughs> girlfriend or wife in Entourage. We have to look up her Emil- name. I don't know how to say her name. I don't know. That's his. It's so It con- used to be oh. Jennifer Aniston, but now Wait, it's this uh, lady. He can't say her name. Yeah. I actually think I might know who you're talking about. Like, yeah, I had dinner with her last night. <laughs> She's one of the investors of Runa. <laughs> Here. How do you say that name? Emmanuel Creaky? Yeah. Creaky? I know her. You do yeah. know her? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah, she's, she's actually good friends with Jenna and Channing. Well, yeah. see. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, yeah. Of course they're, our they're Hollywood friends. spouses know each yeah. other. <laughs> anyway, no, I just, can you just really quickly share the story of... Emmanuel. Okay. Emmanuel. Yeah, there you go. Emmanuel. Yeah. Um, she's awesome. You, <laughs> I love hearing that. Can you just really quickly share the story of when you first got together with Channing and his friend or advisor and like the leap of faith you took to, do you remember what I'm talking about? Because you like... Yeah. They asked you a question and then you went for it. Probably. Well, you know what? People ask me specific questions about my book and I very rarely remember what they're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) I remember remember that moment very well. Yeah. And (laughs) the quick backstory leading up to that, we, I was up in Connecticut with one of our angel investors, this older Indian gentleman who asked me one day, he's, you know, he's like trying to think of how he can help the business. He's like, you know, do you know this guy, Tating Channing? And I'm like, Channing Tatum? He's like, yeah, I think that sounds right. Like, do you think he could be helpful to your business? I'm like, yeah. I mean, sure. If he wants to, I mean, prop, yeah, I think so. He's like, okay, I'll call my friend Neil who knows him and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So he calls his friend Neil. Neil reaches out to Channing and says, hey, check out this stuff, Runa. And he's like, oh, Runa. He's like, we live on Runa. It's like, how do you know about Runa? And it turns out that they had to write the first, he and his business partner, best friend Reed, had to write the first Magic Mike in like three weeks. So they discovered Runa at Whole Foods and basically just cranked Runa constantly for three weeks and wrote the first Magic Mike. So <laughs> Neil's like, oh, that's awesome. Well, you, you got to meet the, you know, one of the co-founders, Tyler Gage. And Channing's like, oh, yeah, nice try, Neil. Like, you know, I'm not going to not going to fall for that. And Neil's like, what do you mean? He's like, come on. He's like, I'm that's just that's BS. Reason being, his first breakout movie was Step Up, the dance movie. And oh, his yeah. character's I'm quite name. I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah, his, yeah, I'm sure you are, Kate. <laughs> His character's name was Tyler Gage in the movie. So just bizarre, crazy so coincidence. So he's like, all right, yeah, you guys got to come to New Orleans. They were filming um, 22 Jump Street. So we flew down, met him, and I didn't really know what to expect. You know, as like a jungle guy, like I'm definitely not all not all Hollywooded. And when we met, they asked me, they're like, what do you want from us? Like, what do you see? And actually, this is a great segue from the prior conversation you know, I'd heard of 
oh, are these guys going to think I got to give them like half my company if they want to help me out? What? I don't know. I don't know. And I was actually on one of these like plant dietas at the time and was like <laughs> totally in my own, my own universe. <laughs> and I got this feeling and I talk about this in the book is hijacking your resistance. Um, and basically had that kind of like anxiety and that fear and that resistance. Like, should I play it safe? I don't know. And basically just went a layer above that and said, Hey guys, like first, I don't know how I want this to go. Very candid, that vulnerable. Like I don't really have a clear vision, but what I do know is that you guys are professional storytellers. All you guys do for a living is you tell stories. And our biggest challenge as an organization is how do we tell a story of this really incredible leaf, this incredible product, and get that word out there. And I feel like there's something there. And I feel like if you're really genuinely excited about that, I'd love to have your support and find a way to make it work. And I don't have money to pay you. And kind of went on my whole like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And they're like, okay, cool. And then change the subject. And I was like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, fuck. <laughs> Just say the wrong thing. I say the wrong thing. <laughs> Next morning, Reed called me. He's like, "Hey, man, we thought you were just going to be some like business schmuck, but like you're like you're for real. Like you're a great person, and it's really clear like you believe in what you're doing, and you really want to have a partnership, and you don't see this as some like transactional douchey thing. So like, we're in. He's like, we're in. We want to invest in the company. We want to write a check and be investors. And the one condition is that we need to come to Ecuador to hang out in the jungle with you. So." That led to a pretty awesome adventure and multiple we've had in the jungle at this point. Yeah, I think that was a very affirming moment of, okay, I could have like come in with a deal or proposal or something, 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 but just being willing to be honest and vulnerable and, and real about it led to some good stuff. He's been amazing. I mean, that, I mean, that's, I think the dream scenario of someone who like he paid full price. He's paid full price for his equity, didn't get anything free. He's done so much to help the business because he truly believes in what we do. And I think that's that's really who he is, is someone who's just a good human who believes in what he believes in and supports things that he cares about. Unfortunately, I think that's very hard to find in the world, let alone yes, in, in yes. Hollywood. <laughs> Even in business, hard to find. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a rare gem. So, yeah. And I loved the story of you guys visiting the Amazon together in the book. Also very fun. We had a lot of crazy adventures, including uh, breakdancing and the middle of communities deep in the jungle and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So can you dance like him? Is that? Uh, the- well, no is the extremely clear answer. Um, <laughs> Does however, Runa make you dance like Channing Tatum? So, <laughs> not exactly. It's probably the fair answer, but you never, since I was, I forget how old I was when step up came out. I think I was like 19, yeah, 18, we're like 19. high school or college. Yeah. yeah. Ever since the movie came out, I would get shit. Of course. People, because they'd always be like, Oh, Tyler Gage, like, no, no, no. And I'd be like, well, actually, I don't know if you know the real backstory, but they saw me tearing up the clubs in San Francisco, and they based the character on me. And people would always be like, really? I'm like, no. But uh, like, clearly, you've never gone to a club with me. Yeah. I mean, I, I, can, I, can, I can hold my own, but nowhere remarkably close to the Danny Tatum level. So. So funny. It's a great yeah. story. It's amazing. So I want to switch gears a little bit and just talk about some of the recent things you've had going on in your life, which is really exciting. You recently oh, okay. got... Oh, is That's that not, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, want to, I want to hit on the operations a little bit. Oh, okay, do that and then okay. I'll go. So like, how does your company... Like, so you're no longer... You made it sound like you're no longer the CEO. Yeah. So um, basically last summer I got married. So actually we can combine. We can yeah, combine see? Look couple. at this segue. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Last summer, I got married, and my wife had been living in Maui, Key West, and Burlington before that, as much as me. I mean, I, I never, ever wanted to live in New York City. It was a great place to just be nose down building a business, but 
not the most nourishing for the other parts no. of myself, which we've thoroughly explored at this point. So we got married and, you know, as we looked to settle down, just New York wasn't the place to be. So decided we wanted to come out from the Northwest, live in Bellingham, Washington now, our beautiful little nook of uh, almost Canada, as you like to say. <laughs> And try to convince the rest of my headquarters, we have, I think, 60 people in Runa now, and we have like 10 people in the headquarters in New York, to make the move and couldn't get a single person interested. So basically made the tough decision to step out, to move into chairman role and hire a new CEO. Very difficult decision to have made. And thankfully, I found this incredible woman, Alexandra Galindez, who actually, similarly, lots of synchronicities, originally from Colombia. Grew up in the beverage industry at Red Bull, Vitamin Water, was recently running Blueprint Juice, actually formulated Guayusa into her products at Blueprint that we sold her and developed a relationship that way. So found her and she took over the CEO seat maybe three, four months ago, which has been great. Also synchronistically found out that she was born less than a day after my wife. So just wow. crazy. We're all like mega Scorpio <laughs> weirdos. That was a big transition. It also then allowed me to have more breadth to get more involved in the work we're doing through the foundation. So we're half nonprofit, half for-profit. So we never really talked about that, but we started with this vision of being a hybrid organization whereby the company could steward the core business essentially of buying fresh leaves from farmers, processing leaves, making beverages, selling beverages, which in and of its own is a very tricky business period. Mm -hmm. As a nonprofit, we can take a much broader view to look at this complex relationship between these communities and the rainforest and think about how we can improve livelihoods in the really holistic sense for these communities beyond just income they're getting for Guayusa. You know, we generated millions of dollars of direct cash income for more than 3,000 farming families at this point. But these people live in one of the most diverse and fragile ecosystems in the world. And they're relatively new to the market economy as well. So basically with Runa Foundation, we created a platform, which mostly has been funded by MacArthur Foundation, to invest in land management planning and forest conservation efforts in community enterprise development and new product research to provide new sources of income and new sustainable products for the communities. That's probably needless to say the stuff that I really get excited about. You know, we, as I mentioned earlier, we've built partnerships with a couple of these indigenous communities in Ecuador and Peru to build these first of their kind healing centers and clinics where people can come and get treated using Amazonian medicine and do some pioneering research to test the efficacy of these treatments for modern disease, which also is something I'm extremely passionate about. Helping some friends start another company as well, doing some investing, joining some boards. So it's been a cool transition from just the like utterly singular focus of building a company to having more breadth. That's awesome. That's really cool. And then can you give me the quick, so you have, you said 3000 farms producing your leaves that you're using. Is that correct? Yeah. So part of what's very unique about Runa is that we exclusively source from family farms. Okay. So even in the tea industry, almost all the tea comes from big industrial plantations. And even the majority of organic and fair trade tea comes from big plantations. With Runa, we were the first ones to ever commercially produce Guayusa. When we went down there and told farmers, whatever, 23-year-olds that we wanted to buy Guayusa leaves for cash and sell them in drinks, they would just laugh hysterically because <laughs> they thought it was a joke. The concept of these weird gringos buying guayusa leaves for cash and putting them in bottles to sell as drinks was just like completely bizarre. But what that allowed us was this opportunity to put the sustainability flag in the ground as far in the sort of right direction as we possibly could. You know, things like fair trade coffee and fair trade chocolate are 
really important but very difficult because coffee and chocolate are super entrenched industries with roots and a lot of injustice. So we could say, hey, we're going to make this 100% grown by family farms, 100% organic certified, 100% grown in the rainforest, and actually design it so that we can create a very scalable business around these principles, which has been, you know, extremely difficult. Yeah. We've had to raise a lot of capital for that and, and you know, all sorts of ins and outs of logisticating there, but <laughs> we're able to put those pieces together. And what's great about Rune, and I mentioned this before, is that our product sales are what create the impact. So it's not just telling a story. It's not just, you know, charity model or charity tacked onto a business. Anyone who buys a Runa product, those leaves came from family farms in the Amazon and are helping them create income to sustainably support their families, manage their land, carry forward their traditions in positive ways, as opposed to abandon their farms, move to cities, cut down trees, burn down the rainforest. So I'm passionate and even some of the other business endeavors I'm excited about, things I'm investing in, have that impact built into the business model. And I think that's the sort of core thesis of responsible business that gets me the most excited right. is how can we build real impact into the business? You know, it's easier when you're kind of a business because everything you guys do is transforming people's lives. When the product world, it's, a, it's harder mm -hmm. to align, but it also is why I'm excited about things like the clinics kind of in, in your vein of existence because it has that sort of personal transformation component to it. That's awesome. And then, okay, so give me the one-minute explanation of, so in my head this entire time, I'm like, how do they manufacture this? Where does it go? So I went to school for engineering and operations has, like, been my thing. So nice. talk to me about, so these farms are producing the leaves, and then what happens to them after they're grown? So essentially, we buy the fresh leaves from the farms seven days a week. We have our own truck, goes to the farms, pays cash on the spot. Part of fair trade and little fair trade 101, because I'm sure lots of your listeners support it, might not know the ins and outs. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was another question. The two basic components of fair trade, you guarantee a minimum price. So this has come a lot where, particularly in the coffee industry, huge price volatility yeah. can basically bankrupt farmers and cause really massive tragedies. So we guarantee a minimum price, a really high minimum price that we pay to farmers. So it's a really stable, guaranteed source of income. Then on top of that, we pay a 15% what's called the social premium. And this is an earned production bonus that goes directly to the farmer cooperatives. So it's a great way to sort of usurp the charity model because it's an earned bonus that mm -hmm. comes from volume they're producing and selling. But it goes into the hands of the farmer cooperatives that they as a group can decide how to use to benefit their communities. So it's not us telling them what they need. It's not us preaching. It's saying, hey, you guys earned you have $50,000, $100,000 in your social premium fund. What do you guys need to make your communities better? What do you need to support your cooperative? Is it education? Is it planting trees? To me, that's a really little known but extremely powerful component of how we do business and pretty consistent across fair trade. So buy leaves, bring them to our factory. Where's your factory? Factory is in a little tiny thousand-person jungle town called Archidona. If you basically found Quito, Ecuador on the map and drove 10,000 feet down the Andes to the east, you'd hit Archidona. The area is called the eyelash of the jungle. It's right where the Amazon meets the Andes. It's extremely biodiverse and extremely beautiful. We do one of the key processing parts is called withering, which is actually, a, you know, we talked about sort of white tea, green tea, black tea. The thing that makes all those teas different is withering, which is essentially oxidation. Like you think about if you cut an apple and it browns, essentially in the tea industry, you're using really sophisticated tools to sculpt the withering process and manage this 
really beautiful chemical transformation that develops the flavor and, and everything else in the leaves. So do a withering process, drying, milling, sifting, and pack and export essentially containers of loose leaf tea. One of my favorite parts of our supply chain is that we have one of the Quechua elders come and do a whole ceremony and blessing of the containers before they leave the factory. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the ways that, again, you know, could you argue it means absolutely nothing? Absolutely. However, it to me is a powerful way to respect and recognize and bring the deeper energy of it to say, hey, yes, this is now a commercial operation. But let's not forget that this comes from Correct. a much deeper tradition that's still yeah. alive and breathing every day. So critical piece of the supply chain, in addition to our quality protocols, import leaves, we then use third-party bottlers and co-packers. So essentially in the U.S., we don't have any of our own like manufacturing facilities. They brew, add the you know flavors, extracts, bottle, label, and then we ship to distributors who then sell to the Whole Foods and Safeways and you know whatnots of the world. Yeah. And uh, cool. we're in about to north of 10,000 stores nationwide now. That's, That's amazing. Amazing. But then you also supply Guayusa to other companies, right? We do, yeah. That's I a loved cool... how you talked about like that moment where it was a decision whether you wanted to like serve the Guayusa and bringing this to the world more, or if you wanted to like insert competition into your market. And I thought that yeah. was a pretty critical decision you made. Yeah, because we were essentially a monopoly on Guayusa, just given the head start that we had. So we could... Ooh, the somewhat, monopolist. I like monopolist, it. Monopolist. Mr. <laughs> Liberal <laughs> Arts became... Nobody didn't. See, here's why I, the story I know. is great. I know. Here's, here's what's but up. at one moment, he was the king yes. daddy of all Guayusa Guayosa tea. Default monopoly slash king daddy status. <laughs> but... You know, in a parallel way to the thought process around that sort of breaking point of entrepreneur to CEO, that like, mine, you know, this is mine. <laughs> right, correct. Mine. correct. It's like, well, that's not the spirit of this plant. This yes. plant has a very convivial spirit, one. And then two, it is better business. So it definitely was a synthesis, you know, not to be like, oh, we made this atrocious business decision because the spirit of this plant told us to. I mean, it was, it was actually a very nice harmony in the sense that as a business, I'm a big believer in especially in the consumer products world, you know, people think about things like coconut water. There wasn't just one company selling coconut water. There was multiple companies selling it. And for us, from the impact point of view, the more we sold, the more income to farmers, which yeah. was sort of the hardest point to get around. And then, you know, sometimes we'll sell the companies and the sales rep will see a new product on the shelf of a company we sold to. And they'll be like, ah, oh, I should have the shelf space. Like what? I'm like, calm down. Like you go do your job. Yeah. And I often tell our team, if we sold Guayusa to someone else and they came and beat us at our game, we failed. Like that's that's no one else's issue or responsibility besides ours. If someone else comes and does a better job selling Guayusa than we do, like, okay, yeah, bow down, take a step back, like we messed up. And also, you know, to the degree that a rising tide lifts all ships in the harbor, you know, with a brand new product to the United States market, I would imagine having other companies spreading the word about Guayusa is probably good for Runa. Totally. No right? question so about it. So people aren't just like, what the heck are you talking about? They're like, oh, yeah, I heard it from this other thing. Oh, cool. Like, I'm familiar with that ingredient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's still new. I mean, it's only been a couple of years. So, yeah. of course, most people don't know Guayusa. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we have full brands like Mama Chia and Blueprint and, you know, David's Tea and all sorts of people selling awesome Guayusa products, it, it definitely helps. Yeah. So the answer to this, I'm probably going to tell you in the question, but or I'm going to answer my own question. But talk about quality of teas. 
You know, like the difference, because I know quality of cars, there's quality of, you know, we're in the supplement game and the vitamins and minerals and there's massive differences across the brands that are in the market of different supplements. So is it the same with tea leaves? And I know guayos is a little bit different. You've explained that earlier between white, green, and black. But like, yeah, talk about like the just the quality that you're going to get from like this different product. Like you go to a Whole Foods, there's 50, 20 different brands, right? So yeah. is there a difference between it or is it all? So yeah, good question. Two things I would focus on to start. One is that people, I think, often overlook organic in tea because mm. I think there's this like, oh, it's tea. Tea's healthy. <laughs> cool. I'll drink some green tea. Tea actually in the industrial sense, like if you just bought some kind of normal green or black tea, uses a lot of pesticides. Yeah. You know, industrial monocrop tea plantations use a lot of pesticides and fertilizers. So organic anything I'm a huge proponent of, but organic tea actually is important because of the pesticide contamination question. The other is that you will get a big difference between loose leaf teas and tea bags. So if you want to take a step into quality tea, the first would be to brew loose leaf tea. Whether it's green tea, black tea, whatever, loose leaf tea is going to give you a much fuller flavor because you're actually getting the full tea leaf. Mm -hmm. It's not actually kind of crumbs that fall through in the tea processing, which is what you would get from like a cup of Lipton or something. So there's a lot of the other, I guess the third misconception though is you don't have to pay that much for good tea. You can get some awesome green teas and black teas for not that much, not that much at all. So full disclosure, I'm on the board of a company called David's Tea, who's the largest tea retailer in Canada with some stores in the US, but more up in Canada. They have online. They have an amazing selection of loose leaf teas and also even loose leaf tea blends with all sorts of crazy, awesome flavors. But they're great. Rishi is an awesome tea provider. Tea Source has some of the nicest like premium loose leaf teas. There's a lot of good stuff out there, but I would say organic would be a good checkpoint and then just start an experiment with some just good, interesting loose leaf teas. Cool. Chris Brogan talked about, he interviewed the founder of David's Tea a long time oh. ago. I heard it a couple of years ago. Big fan. So. Cool. Yeah, super cool company. Yeah. That's awesome. We'll check them out. You guys don't have loose leaf tea though. We do. Yeah. So actually, you do. yeah, on, on Amazon, we sell a lot on Amazon and our best selling SKU is just a pound of loose leaf traditional guayusa. Oh, okay. Because I know, do you sell it at Whole Foods? I've only seen the no. Bags. So the loose leaf yeah. we just sell online. Online, yeah, we okay. Sell, we sell a lot of just straight one pounds of guai guai, as we like to say uh, on <laughs> Amazon. Yeah, we're gonna have to get some. We're gonna get some. We don't have the loose leaf. And then, is your top seller at the retailers like Whole Foods or Safeway the bottled drinks, the pre? So the cans are actually starting to take over the business. The cans. Yeah. So we we have two lines. We have organic iced teas, glass bottles. Our two best sellers, we have an unsweetened guava, which is almost always our number one. Then we have an unsweetened mint honeysuckle, mm. which we created with Olivia Wilde, who's one of our investors, and her friend Babs Birchfield, who have a really awesome company called Conscious Commerce. Probably my favorite of the bottle teas. And then we have a line of what we call clean energy drinks. So eight and 12 ounce carbonated cans, shelled and competing with the Red Bull. We talk about it as energy from a leaf, not a lab. So it's 100% organic, brewed guayusa leaves. Same price as a Red Bull, gives you a bit more caffeine, but has that nice, smooth buzz that you get from Guayusa. So that line is probably the future of the business. I think disrupting the energy drink category is something we're really passionate about, and it's a huge white space where it's rare to find somebody who drinks a Red Bull and is like, this is good for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is really doing great things for me. People are like, okay, yeah, I'm kind of in a pinch, and I'm going to crank a Red Bull now. So when you give him an option, and this is why Channing's great, you know, he talks about it. He's like, 
I grew up in Alabama, 7-Eleven culture. He's like, yeah. for me, Runa, it's ones and zeros. Like, I drink a Red Bull, I feel terrible. I drink a Runa, I feel awesome. Yeah. And there's other great stuff to it as well. But I think we have a very scalable proposition in the cans. The product gets the job done. I love that. Cool. So, all right. So talk to me about, so you got married in the last year, you bought and are renovating a home. You stepped yeah. down as the CEO of your company. You moved to Bellingham, Washington from Brooklyn. Like there've been some real significant changes in your lifestyle over the last year. Yeah. Fact. Yeah. Fact. So <laughs> can you talk to me about how you're incorporating some of the things that you talked about in your book and that helped you grow your company? Just on a daily basis in your marriage, in your, you know, now that you're focused more on the foundation and the clinics and things like that, just what are some of the things that you're noticing in your life as your lifestyle has changed kind of with the shamanic principles? One of the things that's been very present for me, I talk about this idea of clearing your filters, which was one of the main lessons I learned with this whole dieta practice in the Amazon. Essentially, this concept that our intuitive ability to see, you know, not just look at things, but really see our really our ability to perceive as humans has we have filters and we have lenses like the glass in our car that if we don't clean gets really murky. And whether we're pushing really hard, really stressed, lots of inputs, our filtration system and our sort of glasses can get really fogged and clouded. And it's very normal, right? I mean we push really hard and we got to do things to recenter, clean off, reground. And that's something that I've used on a daily basis, weekly basis to sort of push really hard and recenter myself, especially if I'm trying to tap in more deeply. And having moved, I basically came off a sort of eight year bender of <laughs> craziness. So it's, it's been coming back to that core practice of, okay, there was like sort of my daily practice, weekly practice of, all right, push really hard, recenter a little bit. And there's this aggregate exhaustion and misalignment that happens when I think as an entrepreneur, you just get both of you know extremely well for sustained periods of depletion, you need to have then some sustained periods of rebuilding. And this is the first time I've had in my adult life, probably my whole life to really say, okay, I can push hard. I'm still doing lots of things, probably more than I should be. And I can also take a bit of a deeper squeegee, if you will, to my <laughs> lenses to sort of recenter. And even just like in the last couple of weeks of just being like, hey, you know, I was super crazy getting all the book stuff out. And be like, all right, I'm going to realign my yoga practice. Get up every day at six, hour yoga, use that again to like really sink in, breathe in the air, get the trees, kind of tree energy around me. So I would say that's the biggest thing right now of shifting from that sort of everyday, okay, pushing really hard. All right, do a little bit, clean some filters, recenter, do my best. Push really hard to like, okay, I can actually flip that equation a bit more and take at least a little bit more space than I would have before to go a bit deeper. Hey, it was, you know, a couple weeks ago, it was like 11 on a Friday. I canceled two calls and then went and climbed a mountain. Nice. Like I would never have done that a year ago. Yeah. So I think again, just being like, okay, hey, I can be a little bit more patient, a little more humble things, which I haven't always succeeded with and sort of relay some foundation as I get ready for new phases of life. Hmm. It's pretty this exciting. Congrats. Yeah. Congratulations. It's really like it's a big time. So the book launches today. It's yeah. available on Amazon. It and is. can you talk a little bit about the campaign and what people can, obviously where they should get the book and anything else they should know about getting the book? Yeah. So you can get the book most places. Amazon obviously being the easiest for most people. Also have a fully alive campaign. Another one of our celebrity investors is John Isner, the tennis player. 
We'll be at the U.S. Open later this month, so we have an awesome package for people to win tickets to the Open, seats in John's box, get to meet John, along with all sorts of other cool prizes from Runa, from Thrive Market, a whole oh, autograph Fila get-up from Fila. So there's all sorts of cool stuff there. So good offer for people to pick up the book and get a chance to get that fully alive adventure as well. How do they enter to win? So if you go to my website, tylergage.com, there's a button you can basically register and give your email and okay. pretty straightforward. Amazing. That's great. Yeah. And we're huge fans of Thrive Market. So I'm glad you guys are all connected up there. Thrive, um, great. Thrive, Thrive regular actually, boxes every week. <laughs> Thrive's the best. Thrive actually, <laughs> they're one of our biggest accounts in LA as their office. No way. <laughs> Holy so smokes. We sell, we sell a lot oh on Thrive God. and Thrive's office orders cases and cases and cases a week. If you go into Thrive's office any day of the week, they're just all chugging. You know, it would be like a fun, not like you don't have enough going on, but <laughs> it was like such a fun idea of having different companies. And there could be like a little thing that different companies are run by Runa, just like this little stamp of, you know, something. Anyway. I'd um, love to do more of that. My favorite one is a uh, SpaceX. Actually, the SpaceX guys are, are run by Runa. Major Runa addicts. Yeah. Yeah. I love that Magic Mike was written by Runa. That's great. Yeah, right, Run right, by right, Runa. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you're doing amazing. a book tour. Doing a little bit of a book tour. Where yeah, are you going? Uh, so let's see. I have... Do you want me to days. tell you? We have them on our you website right now. <laughs> <laughs> We're on our uh, computer. Let's see. I have a few dates in LA, San Diego, the Bay Area, Portland, Seattle. So that's all kind of next week, week after week after. So on my website, tylergage.com, it's there. If you guys want to list any choice ones... Feel Are free. you coming to the East Coast at all or no? No, it's I'm a West um, Coast tour. West Coast. I might do some East Coast dates in October when I come back, okay. but it's a West Coast initial blitz. Well, if you do, let me know. I'd love I to will. show up. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. Um, sure. All right. Amazing. So Mike has a final question that he likes to ask our guests. Are you ready for that, hon? I am. I just want oh, to ask one thing one, about the book. How was this process for you? I mean, writing a book, was it something you've always wanted to do? Did you have a dedicated writing time? You know, talk me through the actual process of this. So in very Runa Guayusa form, writing time was 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. at the office, three days a week for about three months. The fact that I chose to take that on when I did was, I, I look back and I, it's hard for me, especially at this point in my like more cleared filters, like slightly more zen out self. I'm like, what in the world was I thinking? But like a lot of things with Runa, I got this feeling. You know, I was doing... As I would, uh, I guess two things, as I was doing some more speaking and talking to groups, the amount of excitement people would get of really understanding the roots of what we do, what we stand for, and how we do business was really powerful. And it's the kind of thing that on a label of a bottle is basically impossible to do. And it was frustrating as well. I'd meet other people who'd be like, oh yeah, Runa, you guys sell just like organic tea, right? And I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> no. So wanting to get that story out there of the richness of what we do. And as well, thinking about my journey, I love reading, love reading entrepreneur books. And most of them are written by people who have sold their business for a billion dollars, which is impressive and great. I also wanted to write something per the themes we talked about that was really raw and vulnerable as somebody who's in the trenches and still figuring it out every day and show the connections between these really powerful traditions in the Amazon and the world of trying to live a fulfilling life, build a business, do meaningful work up north. So those are all the inspirations. And thankfully, it all worked out very magically. And I mean, got a lot of interest in the book. Simon & Schuster bought it. 
my editor at Simon & Schuster is from Ecuador, um, wow. who's probably the only editor in the publishing business from Ecuador, which is also a strange coincidence. So there was just a lot of really great support. I'm very excited to have it out there. That's awesome. So since when you were 10, you were thinking about dying, what do you want your, <laughs> the final question we ask everybody is what do you want your funeral to be like? Oh, nice. That's a great, that's a great loop back, man. Well, I actually, for me, and I'll tell you the backstory of how this came about, but the, please give you a moment to think we were in. So Kate's dad has a summer house in Kenny Bunkport, Maine, and we were driving by my favorite building in Kenny Bunkport, Maine is the funeral mm. home. It's gorgeous. It really is beautiful. Like, <laughs> yeah. We drove by the first time. I'm like, what the heck is that thing? It's unbelievable. And I was just like, you know, we should start asking people like being comfortable with death because Kate and I, we talk about it a lot. Mike like, is Scorpio rising. So oh, he's yeah. like really yeah. talking yeah. about that? I'm into the, the dark, the, you know, the there we dark, go. Or yeah. let the light, <laughs> right? So going down the rabbit hole of the crazy. So uh, <laughs> had my fair share of adventures. <laughs> So, yeah, it's like I was like, we should just ask people because we talk about it a lot. And I think it's one of those things we should really talk about more. And as my grandparents passed away, I noticed like just things that were happening. And as talking to more and more people about they're freaking out, like when death happens, like, what do we do? There's nothing planned, like so much fighting at the end of it between families over money, over all this stuff. So I was just like, let's just get it planned out now. And my I remember my uh, parents told me this was Five or six years ago, I was at home with my girlfriend at the time, and they were just longer like, than that because we've been together six years. Oh yeah, are you cold? You want me to shut the door? <laughs> no, I'm oh okay, but yeah, you're right. It's like maybe seven years ago, Time check. eight years ago, uh, seven years ago, let's say. And they were like, "Okay, so this is where we're, once we die, this is where we're going to be buried. This is where the funeral is going to be, and all this stuff." And we got on the plane to come back home. She's like, "Doesn't that freak you out?" I was like, "No, like." They're prepared. They know what they're going to yeah. do. So that's how this came about. All right. So what nice. do you want your funeral to be like, Tyler? Well, three words that come to mind, laughter, silence, and singing. Mm. I think the laughter, my friends do a really good job of making fun of me for a lot of my stupidity. Like my favorite nickname among them, they're like, oh, Mr. CEO. So whenever I do something that's just utterly stupid, which is pretty often, I get a lot of flack from them. So there's plenty of stories of just the absurd stupidity and mistakes and ridiculousness. And I hope there's a lot more of that in my life. So I'd love those stories and lots of laughter to be present. Silence. I like, you know, I think a lot of the way I've lived my life is honoring nature and silence and just sitting with what is. So it would be beautiful to have other people sharing that experience of just witnessing and receiving the silence of the moment and the feelings. I think it's also very Quaker practice, which uh, I've come to rely more on and singing. I think is the thing I loved learning in the Amazon was they say that we're a singing species. So sometimes if someone comes sick, the first question they'll get asked is, when did you stop singing? And it's one of the most effective ways I found to open my heart and also connect other people. So it would be beautiful as well to have songs from different parts of the world and different parts of life being, being shared and, and enjoyed. Mm, I love that. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for coming on our show. Thank you for Thanks writing for having this me. book. Thank you for the work that you do. This was such a joy. So for listeners, go buy the book and then go to tylergage.com and enter the amazing giveaway. And Tyler, I can't wait until our paths cross in person again. And um, blessings on the book release. This is so awesome. 
thank you so much for having me on. It's awesome, awesome to connect. Similar blessings to both of you and new home and all the amazing stuff you're doing and in your work to help so many people inspires me for sure. And I look forward to seeing you both in person as well. Thank you so much. Ever feel like you're constantly doing things, but aren't able to carve out the time or energy for the things that really matter to you? Mike and I want to share our top five tools for making a life, not just a living. To learn what they are, go to katenorthrup.com forward slash tools. See you on the next episode.